So we're, we're coming to the fourth beatitude this morning. Um, just about halfway through the, the eight beatitudes that, that we're going to go through, that Jesus says these eight attitudes or beatitudes are what sh- will shape and form, be formed into those who are following his way. And, and so we've sort of framed this within this, this idea that this is his kingdom manifesto. The, the proclamation of Jesus that the kingdom of God has come and we are invited to embrace his way. And, and as we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are being formed by his spirit to be more like Jesus. We're, we're receiving more and more of his fullness in our lives. And so, if you want to turn with me, again, we're going to be in one verse this morning, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it says, for they will be filled. Or um, another way to interpret that is, and some versions say this, is they will be satisfied. You know, many, many Bible scholars, they see this beatitude as central to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That this beatitude sort of encapsulates so much of what Jesus is aiming at in the rest of his words. And we're going to get into a little bit of that this morning. We'll see that as we, we uh, pick apart a few examples in the Sermon on the Mount. But as we do this, we want to remind ourselves again and, and I've kind of been underscoring this each Sunday, is that how we understand these qualities and approach them is really key in understanding what Jesus is doing here. And, and here, it's not those who feel righteous or have determined that they are righteous enough. That's not who Jesus is referring to here. It's, what he's saying is, again, blessed or in sync with the kingdom of God And the way of Jesus are those who hunger and desire for righteousness, even though they know how unrighteous they are. So that's a really important point, right? This isn't about whether or not we feel like we measure up. That's not at all what Jesus is getting at here. The grammar here actually in the Greek doesn't point to ownership of this righteousness. So it's not someone who owns this righteousness or thinks they own it but rather the desire of the possession of it all. Like it's, it's, the the grammar is this like, I want all of this. That's sort of what it's, how we're meant to understand what Jesus is saying here. So what what do we mean by righteousness? That's that's something that we've got to really think about, right? What what does it mean? It's, It's a word that we hear a ton of in scripture. I mean, it's all over scripture. And yet, what do we think it means? So I want, to, I want to invite you this morning. What do you think righteousness means when you hear that? Right standing with God. Right standing with God. Okay. Right living with God. Right living with God. Anyone else want to venture what they think when they've heard that? Going once. Going twice. Anyone out? You, do, do any of you, when you think of that, you, you, like when you hear that, you think of like, it means like being really good or like almost like this level of perfection. Anyone ever think about that when you hear about righteousness? Like, like it's this having to attain to something, 
of righteousness. Yeah. This is the righteousness that's imputed through Christ. Right. It's right standing with God that's given to you and only found in Christ. Yep. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, before I kind of explain this, I'm going to draw you in a little bit more yet before I kind of reveal what Scripture says of righteousness, what, what kind of gets to the heart of it, because there is something in Scripture that really gets to the heart of it. But, but I want to say this first. You were made for this. You were made for this. See, and, and you've been hardwired for this, so to speak. And, and so now you go, well, I thought, Paul, you've been saying throughout this, these Beatitudes that we're not naturally inclined to these things. That, you know, we're not naturally inclined to being poor in spirit, to being meek. We're, we're not naturally, and, and you're right, we're not. But in this case, when we talk about righteousness, we were created for this. It's part of our original design by God. But first, before all that, before we go further, we have to think through a crucial question. And that is, how do we understand the gospel and how do we internalize the good news of Jesus? Do, do we see it do we see the gospel as profoundly, exceptionally, marvelously good? And, and, and part, so part of that question is, where does the gospel begin? Where do you think the gospel begins? And I would say, right, it starts with God created. It starts with God made us. It starts with what he created was good. It doesn't start with, and this is something where we can start with when we talk about the gospel. It doesn't start with sin and separation. It starts with God created. It begins with God creating out of his marvelous goodness. And there was harmony, there was union, there was fellowship. It was good. There was purpose, there was meaning, there was beauty. Right. And this message of righteousness is woven throughout the Old Testament. On one hand, it's really essential that we understand it. Well, on the other hand, that it also resounds deeply in our lives. So Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad, he has a brilliant explanation that is really enlightening for us. He says this, There is absolutely no concept in the Old Testament with so central a significance for all the relationships of human life as that of righteousness. It is the standard not only for man's relationship to God, but also for his relationship to others, reaching right now to the most petty arguments. Indeed, it is even the standard for man's relationship to the animals and to his natural environments. Ultimately, relationship is what righteousness is all about. We see this throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, it's all over that book. Deuteronomy 6.25. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness, it says, or that will be our right relationship. Think of Deuteronomy 30. If you, if you read that chapter, the whole chapter is about walking in right relationship with God. It speaks of turning to him with all of our heart and soul, of how God will pursue his people 
in relationship. And it ends with an exhortation at the end of it to choose life. And then it says there, to, it, says, to, it ends with to love the Lord your God, to listen to his voice and hold fast or tightly secured to him. We see righteousness as relationship throughout the Psalms as well. Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one: they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Psalm 23, 3, he leads me or guides me in paths of righteousness or in right paths for his namesake. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, it says. When we begin to see righteousness in terms of right relationship, as in the right paths of God, you'll be amazed at how the goodness of God comes alive in the, in the book of Psalms and just throughout the Old Testament, that it is about relationship together. When, when we understand this in light of the Ten Commandments, it transforms our understanding of them. As well, you know, from thinking that the Ten Commandments are all about the law, right? It's all about the, the ten laws that we must follow to see that it's all about relationship. What's the first line of the law? And, and when you ask that, most people will reply, you shall have what? No other gods before me. But that's actually not where the law starts. That's not the beginning of it. When you read Exodus 20, it begins with God declaring, I am Yahweh, your God. I'm, he says, I am the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The law begins with this declaration of relationship. I am your God. You are my people. So for years, like probably so many, I thought the Ten Commandments growing up as kind of this ultimate list of do's and don'ts, right? Like just the ten, like you better not do this kind of things that were required. Like I had to do these in order to have relationship with God. But I was totally misguided. That's not it at all. God begins by revealing that he has already entered into relationship with his people, right? Again and again, how many times does he say in the Old Testament, it's not about you. It's not about your righteousness. It's not about what you've done. I chose you. I entered into relationship with you. And through faith in Jesus, we are brought into that relationship. And so really what we see with the Ten Commandments is the law is simply about right relationship brought about by God's grace. And, and throughout the Old Testament, prophets, we see this too, where we, the same call over and over again, return to the Lord, come back into relationship. But alongside that, because the people were disobedient, we also see the Lord's promise again and again, I will come and bring you back into relationship. Jeremiah 33, 16, it says, In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that righteousness is all about living in faithfulness to the relationship. 
And this then is part of Jesus announcing his good news. And Jesus says that those who are in sync with his gospel, those who are in sync with the way of his kingdom, will, they'll see this and they'll long for the restoration in their lives. Righteousness is everywhere in scripture because the story of the Bible, the grand story of scripture, is that this is all about right relationship. You see it in from creation to then sin entering the world, then the promise of redemption, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth that's going to come, the restoration of relationship that God is bringing about. But alongside this in our world, there's also this pervasive idea that I think we've all felt or we all feel, and that is that religion is all about rules. It's all about just a bunch of rules that we have to follow. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's all about performance or it's all about compliance. It's all about image. And if we do just enough to get by, that's the best that we can expect or should be expected of us. Like what else can we do? And when we allow that thinking to burrow its way into our lives and to take root in our lives, we have just totally misunderstood the good news of Jesus. We've totally misunderstood his way and the depth of our need for redemption. Jesus says here in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says it's just after, about 11 verses later, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When we understand that the law was never about a list of rules, those words that Jesus spoke there become something totally different for us. Because the law is not a list to keep to make ourselves good enough, which that temptation and inclination still continues in humankind. That we think we have to somehow attain to something and just keep it good enough and then we'll be okay. The law reveals what it looks like to be in right relationship with God, and it's only by his grace. By grace you have been saved. So many, many theologians, they, they point to Matthew 5.20 right after this as kind of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and connecting it to, it's connected to this beatitude in a lot of ways. And it encapsulates, a lot of theologians believe it encapsulates what Jesus is really driving at. And that is where he says there, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, the the lawmakers, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you will never enter the kingdom of God, he says. How, How do we understand this? What is our response we can't just dismiss it if we're going to follow the way of Jesus. That's, that's a big statement, right? That's a big deal what Jesus says there. Like if your righteousness doesn't pass them, you, you have no hope of entering the kingdom of God, he says. Like you can't just go, oh, that's not, that's, that verse doesn't matter. And, and it can be interpreted, see that, that verse can be interpreted in a way that makes it all about performance. 
makes it all about keeping do's and don'ts. It makes all about, am I good enough? Have I achieved enough? Am I, am I really good enough? So, Jess's cousin shared this with me, yeah, <laughs> this week on uh, social media to me, and, and I, you know, it made me laugh. Um, but there's a subtle and really dangerous message in that. And that, you know what that message is? At least part of it is? Be careful around the pastor. Make sure you present the right image. Make sure that when you're around Paul, you just say the right things and you just present the right image. Because if not, you know, it's about performance. I, now, yeah, it's funny. I mean, it made me laugh, right? But there's a deeper message there. Matthew 5.20 is directly connected to Matthew 5.17 where Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish law, I came to fulfill it. And then he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the religious teachers of the day. It's not, and what Jesus is getting at there is it's not about external conformity. It's not about what you look like. It's about right relationship in our lives. How we live matters because of how it affects our relationships. This is the thread that sort of continues throughout the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. How we relate to God, how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to creation. All those are front and center in our world today. So Jesus, he's talking about how our flesh is naturally inclined to relate, like how you, like what your default is. If, if you are not being redeemed and transformed by the message of the gospel, you have a natural fleshly way that you will react and the way that you will communicate. Versus those being formed by the way of Jesus and how those are called, how we are called to relate as those following Jesus. And, and we see this dichotomy here. The difference is striking in how we relate. So we were created for relationship. That's really what we're driving at here. We were created for right relationship. So first, we were created for right relationship with creation. I'm not, I'm not going to say a ton about this. Uh, this deserves a lot more attention than just a little bit here. But we are physical creatures. We are created as physical creatures. We are created from matter. The Hebrew word for human is Adam, or we say Adam, and the Hebrew word for earth is Adama. They are completely connected and interconnected. As one scholar noted, our welfare is tied up within the welfare of the earth. So this is a complex but incredibly relevant topic in our world. How we understand ourselves as species, as a species, how we understand purpose and meaning in light of this, and what is our responsibility to live in light of this, to live righteously with the earth, to live in right relationship to creation. Because See, a Christ-centric belief system that puts Jesus as Lord tells us that God created. 
It tells us that God, what he created was good. That it wasn't just happenstance. That it didn't just appear out of nowhere. That there is purpose and design. And while sin has ravaged aspects of creation and continues to, God is coming back and he has promised, I am going to restore and redeem this. I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to have right relationship with creation. Secondly, we were created for right relationship with other humans. Genesis 2 tells us that from the beginning, God made us for relationship with others. No one is made whole in isolation from others. We were made for community. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The word for woman is ish-ah. Again, it's this interconnectedness that we're meant to see. We were made for fellowship with one another. And so how we treat one another affects our relationship with God. They're not separate. And so this is where the biblical ethic for the intrinsic value of life, it's rooted in this. God created us and he created us for relationship where we hold life as precious and valuable, that no life is to be discarded. So this is where the Christian ethic around issues like euthanasia and abortion have been so distorted. The reason we feel deeply about these issues, or I would say we should feel deeply about these issues as followers of Jesus, is because scripture calls us to live to righteousness or into right relationship in regards to life. So advocates for abortion have achieved, you know, sort of they've achieved this where the whole issue now is being framed within women's rights. In fact, the very fact that me as a man should even be talking about this, I would, they, I would be told you have no right because it has nothing to do with you or your body, so stay out of it. it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be told that quite as nice. Right? If we don't, if we, and, and if we don't want a baby, in fact, there was a journalist who wrote about this, and she, she said that before she wanted a baby, she saw a ba- the baby just as a collection of cells. When she started to realize she wanted the baby inside of her, it became something different. Right? But if we call it just a collection of cells, well, what do we do? We dehumanize it. Science clearly shows that life begins at conception. And I think this is where we, we, we kind of go, how, how do we in a society like this that claims empathy and tolerance and we want, we want equality, how in the world do we rip apart babies in the womb? How, would we ever, how do we ever justify that? Well, one way, one reason how we've done it now is this thing called personhood theory, which is all over uh, academia, where being a human doesn't make you a person. Now, seriously, what does? So the question is, what does? Well, they would say cognitive function, self-awareness. So then the question becomes, how do you define this? How do you define this with the elderly? How do you define this with people with disabilities? How do you define this with kids who, or babies that are born down syndrome? Some bioethicists are proposing post-birth abortions up to three days because some birth defects don't show up for about three days after birth. So they say we should have about a three-day window. The rationale is it's a body, but it's not a person yet. There's actually Peter Singer. He's a well-known bioethicist. He's taught at Princeton University. 
He said on his website that you can make a great case for post-birth abortion for up to three years. Because he says, how much cognitive function does a toddler have? See, abortion views the fetus almost, one view of it is that the fetus is trespassing the body, right? It's ignoring that pregnancy is intrinsic to, to women. And so, if we just think about this and pull back, it's actually against nature to go in with harsh chemicals and sharp instruments. That's not, that's, that doesn't, that's not with nature. Intellectual atheist Yuval Harari, he says this, he says, human rights are a Christian myth. Yeah, he actually says that human rights comes out of a worldview rooted in Genesis 1, that we are created in the image of God. And so the ethic that we have in our society, like the strong shouldn't prey on the weak, that, that's a thoroughly Western view that's been born out of Christianity. In the ancient Greco world, it was honorable for the strong to prey on the weak because it showed that you were strong and you were celebrated for that. So this is, not, this is something that's actually come out of a Christian ethic. Philosopher Tom Holland says, that human rights is a Christian innovation. So when it comes to our worldview, how we look at things, right relationship, ethics comes from our view of nature. And the secular liberal ethic that dominates almost all of education now is a theory that's derived from the belief that nature is mindless, purposeless, The causes of it are are totally purposeless. The body has no intrinsic purpose. There's no moral obligation to respect it. The mind can use the body any way that it wants. It's just an accident. You are just a meat skeleton. That's one of the phrases used. So Camille Paggia, she's a well-known feminist and lesbian, well-known intellectual, really smart She agrees. She says, of course, nature made us male and female. Of course, because nature made us a reproducing species. It's clear in science. So then she's asked, so how do you defend then being a lesbian? And her response is, why not defy nature? Fate, not God, has given us these bodies. Why not do with them as we want? But if there is purpose and design and creation by a loving creator. And science shows this again and again and again. As Christians, there's nothing in us that should say that we are at odds with science. Nothing. Fully embrace science. It's the wonder of God. It shows us that when we live in harmony with this as intended, we flourish because God intended that for our, his creation. Now, I, having said that, I want considering abortion because it is deeply personal and emotional. It's not just an intellectual level, right? Actually, abortion, as much as anything, is an emotional issue and invokes extreme responses because, you know, it's not just about the science. It's about people. It's about women. And what is the responsibility of the church to minister to the hurting? What's our responsibility to pursue right relationship? There was a story I heard this week, a young woman 
uh, from a Christian college. She, had, she was there. She had broken up with her boyfriend, and the boyfriend came to her door, uh, ended up putting a rape drug in her drink, and basically ended up revenge raping her uh, because she broke the relationship. And she got an abortion. She, she became pregnant. She got an abortion, she said, because she was so fearful of what the church would do to her family. She says, I still am against abortion. I, I don't believe in it at all. But she says, consider, she said, churches are more sympathetic to convicted felons than women who have had abortion. She said, consider the amount of prison ministries in churches versus ministries to women who have had abortions and are hurting. We have to think deeply as the church how we are called to pursue right relationship in very complex emotional issues. Third, we were created for right relationship with our inner self. We are psychological creatures. God's design was for us to embrace ourselves, that you embrace yourself without any guilt, without any shame. And what happened is the presence of sin came in and all of a sudden guilt and shame are a reality in our lives. All of us deal with it to various degrees, but the deep-rooted reality of shame in us leaves us with all sorts of issues of self-worth. So Nancy Percy, she's a, a Christian evangelical intellectual, so, so brilliant. Uh, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to read it. Uh, I, it sounds absolutely phenomenal. But I was listening to a podcast with her this week where she talked about transgenderism as, as part of what she was talking about. And, and this argument that your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex. And, and she cited a BBC documentary that talks about and says at the heart of the debate, this documentary says, is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. So there's kids in kindergarten, and I know this is happening in Canada, where there's teachers coming, kids are coming home and they're saying, my teacher says that I'm a boy, but just because I have boy parts doesn't mean that I, ha I have to consider myself a boy or a girl, vice versa. This is happening as young as five, six. It creates unbelievable turmoil, inner turmoil in people and kids. And we're told, we are told, you must affirm this. And, can, and, and, and what's, see again, when we get back to nature, you should, if you feel this way, it's okay to condemn the biological body that you have received. And Nancy Percy makes the point. She says, why accept such a demeaning view of the body? Because our bodies, your body is the work of God. Meaning, they have dignity and value because God created this body. What, and what God has created is intrinsically good. Is it not? It's intrinsically good because God made it. So you begin to see now, this is not about, we're not at war with certain groups of people. This is the, the deception of the enemy that's pervasive in society. You know what he's coming at? He's coming against what God has said is intrinsically good. So when we begin to understand righteousness as right relationship, we begin to see Jesus' teaching on issues such as adultery and divorce 
very differently as well, where he talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. The external actions of those things that lead to this brokenness begin in the inner self. When we think of divorce, spouses who live righteous with one another are living up to the vows of their marriage covenant. That's what it means to live righteously. When Jesus speaks of adultery, it's the sin of seeing others simply as physical objects to use in pursuit of our own pleasure. And Jesus there, in speaking about it, he's provoking us to think about the depths of consequences when we live outside of right relationship with others. To think that engaging with pornography doesn't hurt anyone else. I mean, that's what we're told all over the place in our culture. It doesn't hurt anyone doesn't matter, go about it. And to think that looking at others is simply as, simply as objects to be used for our own enjoyment, we're told that's, that's no problem, it dismisses the reality of what is transpiring within us, what's happening inside here, and the tearing of our relationship with our creator. It's, we're at turmoil in our inner self. So we were created for right relationship with creation, with other humans, with our inner self, and lastly, we were created for right relationship with God. God has designed us to live as whole beings, to live in communion with him at every level. It's this relationship with God that holds all the other relationships to creation, to others, and ourselves in right relationship. The greatest commandment is, right, What is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? With all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Don't see that as a rule. See that as the foundation for your best life. It's not a rule. This is the way to life with God. Daryl Johnson says, we are spiritual creatures designed for trusting, obeying, enjoying, loving, and experiencing God's own delight in being God to us. We were made for holistic relationship. So God's will and purpose is that we would find wholeness in him. Colossians 2, right? Where it says there, all the fullness of God is found in who? Who's it found in? All the fullness of God. Colossians 2, Christ, in Jesus, right? There, There is not just a little bit of fullness of God in Christ. There's not just some of it and some and other stuff, you know, pursue this belief system, this belief system. No, no, it's all found in Christ. Every part of us is, the desire of God is that every part of us would be made new and whole. So it takes purpose, intention, and choices on our part to pursue healing and transformation in our lives through the work of Jesus, to be committed to spiritual habits in our lives that welcome more of God's presence in our lives. Okay, this is where I want to end this morning, and that is the last part of this verse. Those who hunger and desire for righteousness will be what? Satisfied or filled. Yeah. We we shouldn't be surprised here, because like the other Beatitudes, Jesus uses intense verbs to describe this hunger. 
It's, it's not, he's not speaking of a mild desire for food, you know, like, like a little snack will tide you over. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about like just a, you know, a nice ice cold Starbucks coffee will get you through. You're a little bit thirsty and, you know, you just get that nice little Starbucks. And that's, that's not what he's talking about here. It's speaking of hunger of someone who's on the edges of starvation. He's speaking of someone who is desperately in need of a drink. Their thirst is so bad. It's desperation. Jesus is speaking of those who long for this righteousness as if their lives depended on it. And what it does, this, this is what it does for us. It reveals that the good news of Jesus is for now. It is the righteousness of God breaking through for now. It's not this far off in the distant future, we're going to get to heaven and it's going to be woo. Yes, eternity is going to be awesome with God, but it starts now. It's the breaking in of God's kingdom now. And he's saying, this is your best life now. Romans 1.17, for in the good news of Jesus, it says there, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So again, think of that righteousness that God's talking about there, right relationship. This is telling us through the gospel of Jesus, God is in the business of healing our relationships. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us that God will see it through. It's a sure thing. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, meaning do not be conformed to its patterns, its norms, its ways of thinking, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Meaning we don't have to live for the compulsions, addictions, and obsessions of this world them being all very real and personal for us. They're all really real. People deal with them all the time. Jesus is announcing the good news of what God desires to do in the lives of those he created. Jesus' way to overthrow the world's way that is corrupted by sin and all the ugliness of it. This is is why sin and destruction in the lives of people is is so painful, it's so tragic because it's not what God intended. The desire for other things, maybe not even things that are inherently bad, but the desire for other things that can and never will satisfy. It's like the disorder of loves in our lives. So we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus tells us later that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't don't be worried about all the other stuff. Don't be worried about what you'll eat, what you'll wear. Don't be, don't get, what he's saying is don't get caught up in all the cares and all the stuff of this world that will just keep you distracted. Don't, Don't have that as your highest pursuit. Seek first the kingdom of God and right relationship first. And Jesus' promise is that when we are in sync with his way, he says, we'll be satisfied. You will be satisfied. 
One commentary notes this, and I'll end with this. The phrase here breathes wholeheartedness. If we have a passionate desire to be right with God and to stay that way, he is going to meet that desire to the full. Isn't that good? It's this wholeheartedness to what God is offering us. Because, why? Because we are in sync with his kingdom. All right, I want to, no, I'll pray and then I'll give you some, there's some application questions that you can go away with. Jesus, we thank you so much for your gospel, for your good news that tells us that in this world all around us that seems so chaotic and seems so out of order that you are making something new. Jesus, you are doing a good thing. And Jesus, we want to receive this call to us for right relationship, that we would be in pursuit of this right relationship with ourselves, with others, with the world around us, and ultimately with you, God, that we would be in pursuit of this right relationship we would hunger and thirst, that we would be desperate, that we would see that nothing else will satisfy, nothing else. Other stuff might tide us over for a time, but nothing else will truly satisfy us. God, would you work that in us? Would you work that in our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you do that this week and beyond? Jesus, we pray this, we ask for this in your powerful, powerful name. Amen. So I want to I just leave us with five questions again for application. Um, I was thinking about this too. For those of you that are in EHS and you're like, well, I've got, I'm doing a bunch of stuff weekly with EHS, like feel free to not uh, do this. But, if, but again, if you want to, by all means. But this is um, just, just some questions to maybe, again, stir up and take this beyond Sunday, right? And, and I was talking with some people after last week and, and just the reality, like, 45, 50 minutes, whatever it is, of preaching on these verses is not nearly enough to work this out in our lives, right? This, this, is, like, this is just the tip of, like, the taste of you going deeper with the Lord and having him work in your life. And, and hopefully that, that this is a bit of a catalyst for you, like, I, I want to do this. But So here's some questions. Number one, how have I viewed righteousness in my life? Where have I seen it as rules rather than relationship? Two, what does it look like for me to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Three, where am I feeling unsatisfied in my relationship with Jesus? Four, where do I need Jesus to heal relationships in my life? What can I do? And five, how can I pursue desire for relationship with God this week? And beyond, hopefully, but this week as well. All right, Jen, why don't you uh, come up and lead us as we close.